Ephesians chapter 4. I'm returning to my usual manner of expository preaching tonight. I thought this morning, you know, I can, after I said what I said, that I can say whatever I want to say. I thought, yeah, but I'd never get away with that with this crowd. <laughs> Which I'm thankful for that. Anyway, Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The title of the message tonight, Keeping Unity by Our Walk. Keeping Unity by Our Walk. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to open thy precious word. And I pray as we look into the scriptures tonight that we would study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman, that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So help us, help me, I pray, to rightly divide the scriptures, make application to our lives. For thy, our good and thy glory, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To think about unity, um, four or five years ago, we were out in visitation one evening, and I met this older gentleman, nice gentleman, he had been a missionary for part of his life, and I think he moved back here to Rollsville, retired, and so on. And, and uh, as I talked, he said, um, why don't you come join our prayer group? And I said, uh, I said, oh, it's all right. We, we pray at our church. And, uh, didn't want to criticize his prayer group. And he said, well, I found that, you know, we... The older I get, the more I realize we need to get together across denominational lines. That unity is important. And I said, well, I don't believe the Bible instructs us to, to create unity at the price of doctrine. He said, yeah, but I believe. And the older I get, the more I'm convinced about it that we need to get together in the body of Christ. Of course, you know, he's referring to the universal church, which is a made-up thinking of man. But anyway, but what the liberals do, they, and they call it, they create unity in diversity. You know, they want everybody to all get together. And of course, they're all heading back to Mama, the Church of Rome. Uh, all these Protestants, but they all, all get together because they think there's strength in all getting together. And I've reminded a lot of people who have talked to me about that, and I said, well, it was Abraham the separated one who had power. Not Lot, who joined Lot, who joined Sodom and Gomorrah. And that religious crowd, you know, that's, that's the picture of the ecumenical church right there. No, it was Abraham who was armed his own trained servants, 318 in his house, and defeated those kings. He's the one, and he's the one that had power with God. The separated one. 
Uh, and so, you know, we don't create unity, we just keep it. There's a big difference, and I hope by the end of this message you'll understand that. But I want to notice, first of all, as we think about keeping unity by our walk, first of all, we are called to walk in unity. Notice verse 1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Now, the word walk is used seven times in this book of six chapters. Uh, first time is chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, uh, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And here in chapter 4, verse 1, and then in chapter 4, verse 17, it's used two times. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And then again in chapter 5, and verse 2, he says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And then in verse 8, But ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord, Walk as children of the light. And then again in chapter fifteen or verse fifteen of chapter five, see then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeem the time because the days are evil. So it's used seven times, of course number seven is a number of completion or perfection, and I'm not going to spend time on that, but the word walk means to regulate one's life or to conduct oneself. So it's an idea of we are, we are regulating or conducting our way, and he says we're to walk uh, worthy of the vocation wherewith they're called. So we're to conduct ourselves worthy. That word worthy means suitably or in a manner worthy of. Uh, <clears throat> for example, in... Uh, Chapter 5, verse 3, it says, But fornication, all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh. And that word becometh has the idea of suitable. In other words, those things are not suitable, or they do not fit the Christian life. And so he's saying that we need to walk or conduct ourselves in a manner that's suitable, or that fits the, the manner of the kingdom of God, as children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, and you know, Paul wrote to the church at Colossians, and and you could see this in every church that Paul wrote to. He said something in this, this manner, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wrote to Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God, worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. You know, God is a God of holiness. God is a God of righteousness. And, and he desires that we walk worthy of him in a way that's suitable or that is fitting as a child of God. You know, often boys pick up mannerisms of their dads. You know, uh, or you know, they, they take on characteristics, or they may walk like them. Or I know Pastor Webb said one time, you'll see Spurgeon often like this. Because that's the way Pastor Webb does it. And he picked up that habit. He watched his dad do it. You know, or, or they may walk like their dad or something like that. And, and this is the way we ought to walk like our Heavenly Father. Worthy of Him. Philippians 1.27, Paul 
Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And John also, in 1 John 2, 6, says, He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So we are to, we're called to walk in unity, to, to conduct our lives in a way that pleases him. And we're to walk worthy of that vocation. The word vocation simply means a call. It's a divine invitation, if you will, to embrace salvation in the kingdom of God. And, and again, the, the word called there at the end of verse 1, you know, it says the vocation wherewith we are called is similar. It, it again, it means to invite. Uh, to invite something or someone to participate in, to enjoy. And, it, and, and uh, Thayer says it's used, used thus in the epistles of Paul and Peter of God as inviting men by the preaching of the gospel to the blessings of the heavenly kingdom. And so, you know, we are invited, we've been given a divine invitation uh, by God to walk worthy of his kingdom. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, he says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the last book of the Bible says in Revelation 22.17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him as a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So we've been given a divine invitation from Almighty God, our Father, to conduct ourselves in a way to regulate our lives worthy or suitable or as befitting the children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We've been invited to that. And it's a call to walk in unity. Then I want to notice the second thing here, the characteristics, characteristics of the walk of unity. If you notice in verse 2, he says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now he lists four things, or four characteristics here, that are indicative of this walk that will keep the unity of the faith. And the first one is lowliness. Verse 2. Lowliness. Lowliness. The word lowliness means to have a humble opinion of oneself. A deep sense of one's moral littleness. Modesty. Humility. Lowliness of mind. is often the words that Paul uses. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let us each esteem other better than themselves. In Colossians 2.18, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.5, Likewise, younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. Clothed, that means... the. The idea there is to be engulfed in thoroughly or completely with humility. For God resisteth the proud. And, and again, the picture there is God goes to war against the proud person. He's against them. And giveth grace unto the humble. 
Paul, when writing to the churches in Rome, said, Romans 12, 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You know, when a man thinks more highly of himself than he should, he's not thinking soberly. He's like a drunk. That's possessed of himself. Out of, you know, not thinking clearly. You know, one of the things that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, five times he used these two words, puffed up. Puffed up. I mean, they were, we would used to say, he's just full of himself. You know, he's full of himself. They were puffed up. They were, they were proud. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, In these things, brethren, I have it a figure transferred to myself unto Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. And again, five times he says, you're puffed up. You know, we are not to think of ourselves better than anyone else. You know, our relationship with the Lord may be better than someone else's. Our quality of life may be better. But that is not because of who we are. No, it may be better because of the grace of God in our lives. You know, we're all sinners by nature. We're all sinners by choice. We're all children of wrath. We learned that in chapter 2. We are all... We are all, if we were left to ourselves, would be wicked beyond measure. So no one of us is better than another in and of ourselves. It's simply the grace of God that's worked in our lives. You know, Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. He says, for I am the least of the apostles that I'm not even meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. So it wasn't me. I mean, I'm the least. I was the worst sinner if you will. He wrote Timothy, he said, I was the chief of sinners. But he said, the grace of God worked in me, and I labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. He wrote more epistles than all the others. He started more churches than all the others. He did more traveling than all the others. And without question, we would say, Paul was the most influential man in the New Testament, other than Lord Jesus Christ, from the book of Acts on. But it wasn't because of who he was. Because of what the grace of God did in his life. So we need to have this lowliness of mind. We're not any better than anyone else. But what the grace of God has done in our life. Secondly, not only lowliness of lowliness, with all lowliness, but with meekness. And the word meekness is a word that you will rarely hear in our society. Uh, 
probably, I would say, of the character traits listed in the Bible, probably the most misunderstood term that there is. When you say weakness, what do people automatically think of? Weakness. You're weak. Oh, you're, a, you're just a meek, mealy mouth, you know. Like a little dog with a tail between his legs. Afraid of your own shadow. That's not what meekness means. In fact, it has nothing whatsoever to do with that. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology says this. Quote, late 20th century Western culture does not hold meekness to be a virtue in contrast to the ancient Near East and Greco-Roman world, which placed a high premium on it. This dramatic shift in values is problematic for contemporary biblical translation. Most modern versions replace the noun meekness by gentleness or humility. That's not correct. There's difference. Largely as a result of pejorative, that means belittling, overtones of weakness and effeminacy, now associated with meekness. These connotations were not always predominant in the word, for ancient Near Eastern kings were not reluctant to describe themselves as meek, in the same context in which they described themselves as mighty kings. What has promoted the, prompted the discrepancy between the biblical and contemporary attitudes toward this virtue? There are two essential components of this quality to come into play in the Bible. First, a conflict in which an individual is unable to control or influence circumstances. So, as we're thinking about meek, meekness, there's two things that he says that, that, that components of, of meekness. So, there's first, a, a conflict which you are unable to control. And then secondly, uh, and, and he says, typical human responses in such circumstances include frustration, bitterness, or anger. But, and here's the second component, the one who is guided by God's Spirit accepts God's ability to direct events. So you have a circumstance which you're unable to control, and then you, a meek person, accepts God's ability to direct those difficult circumstances. That's what he says meekness really is. A willingness to accept the difficult circumstances God places in your life. He goes on and says, Meekness is therefore an active and deliberate acceptance of undesirable circumstances that are wisely seen by the individual as only part of a larger picture. Meekness is not a resignation to fate, a passive and reluctant submission to events, for there is little virtue in such a response, you know, just to give up. Nevertheless, since the two responses, resignation and meekness, are externally often undistinguishable, it's easy to see how we, what we once perceived as a virtue has become externally often undis- indistinguishable, or, I'm sorry, has become a defect in our contemporary society. The patient and hopeful endurance of undesirable circumstances identifies as a person as externally vulnerable and weak, but inwardly resilient and strong. Meekness does not identify the weak, but more precisely the strong who have been placed in a position of weakness where they persevere without giving up. He says the use of the Greek word when applied to animals makes this clear, for it means tame when applied to wild animals. In other words, such animals have not lost their strength, 
but have learned to control the destructive instincts that prevent them from living in harmony with others. So he says a good example of that is a, a wild animal which has been trained or learned to control its instincts to kill. To be destructive. Not that it still couldn't. It's just learned to control it. And so when we think about meekness, the idea here is when, when we run into difficulties, when, when, when Moses was faced with the difficulties of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, he accepted it as his lot in life and that God had the ability to direct all the events to bring it to pass. In fact, the Bible says that Moses was meek above all men that were on the face of the earth. And by no means was Moses a weak man. Acts chapter 7 describes him as, as mighty in word and deeds. He was a trained warrior. But yet he was a meek man. You know, being placed in circumstances that were out of his control, he accepted God's ability to direct the events. And, you know, there's meekness is only used, I think, uh, about 14 times in the Bible. A couple of examples. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Now, if you spend any time trying to help somebody with their problems, you can get really frustrated. I know I've said something like this at least once in my life. I'd just like to take a sledgehammer and hit them over the head. You know, how can it be so dense? I don't think I've said anything like that in the last few years, but uh, it's been a while. But, you know, sometimes it says in meekness instructing those that oppose, they're opposing themselves. You would think they'd say, you know what? I'm destroying myself. Why can't they see it? You, you, you ever you're, you're, you're you know, maybe working with somebody and or thinking of somebody and you you say you say these words, I don't know why they can't see it. It's as plain as the nose on their face, and you can get frustrated. But it says in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the knowledge of the truth, James one twenty one says, Lay, wherefore laying apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. And receive with meekness the engrafted word. You know, there's a lot of things in this Bible that doesn't, hasn't always set well with me. I didn't like it. It was difficult. But see, we're to accept it with meekness. Accepting the circumstances God has placed us in and trusting him to direct us. You know, telling somebody that they're wicked, depraved, vile sinner doesn't always set well. But we have to receive with meekness. Accepting 
you know, the circumstance that we are in, you know, that's really, really that's being honest with yourself. Sometimes it's hard for us to be honest with ourselves. Uh, James 3.13, Who is a wise man and does with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Again, you're, 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 uh, uh, the idea here is teaching. Of course, this chapter talks about teaching and the tongue and all that. And uh, using meekness um, in, in different circumstances, being guided by, the, by God's word and not your own wisdom or your own ideas. And then 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And I thought, I was thinking about that a little bit. In our society, and of course it's changing, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, you could just, you could, you could just, basically you could tell anyone, most people, the gospel and they would not get highly offended or threaten you. Put yourself in Peter's place in Peter's time. Because Peter is writing to the churches that are scattered abroad. Why are they scattered? Because of persecution. And so to witness to somebody and give them the gospel would be really the under the threat or the possibility of persecution. So you had to accept, be willing to accept the circumstances that placed you in and trust God's ability to direct the events. Because it may mean you may be risking your life or your health by doing so. And so, meekness. If somebody is given this definition, or I'm not sure if uh, uh, one I put together, but it's really uh, the idea of, of uh, being weak to defend yourself, but being strong to stand for the Lord. That, that would be, uh, I think, a good, a simple way of putting it, meekness. Weak to defend, you know, Moses never defended himself until he had to. Um, and, and, and so, and the Lord took up his case. So, so lowliness, meekness. Third characteristic is long suffering. Verse two again, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering. Long suffering is is described as endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, especially as shown in bearing troubles and ills, and a slowness of avenging wrongs. Now, go to First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one. And I see, think we see an illustration of this as we think about this, of long-suffering. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Of course, Paul's writing this to Timothy. How be it, for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul says, the Lord showed was long-suffering to me. In other words, he was slow in avenging for my wrongs. 
You know, the fact that the Lord saved a wicked sinner such as Paul demonstrates he is long-suffering. Think of it. Saul had part in the death of some very godly people. Persecuting the church. Now, if I'd have been back then, you know, this thought came to mind because, you know, I'm not as spiritual as a lot of people. I would have said something like, why doesn't the Lord just kill him? After all, he's so wicked, there's no hope for him. Of course, unless he's one of the elect. No, just kidding. He couldn't have been one of the elect. You know, as wicked as... No, but... You know, it has nothing to do with it. But, you know, God was showing his long-sufferingness, long-suffering to Paul. First Peter 3, 2, 3.20 is another example. It was sometime where disobedience when once the long-suffering of God waited. You know, every imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. Except for eight people out of millions, or maybe even billions. We don't know how many were on the earth. But you think, you know, if you live 900 years and you start having children when you're 100 or 200, they populated very quickly. But God was long-suffering, and he waited in the days of Noah while the ark was repairing, wearing a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. So, you know, and we need to be long-suffering ones, slow to avenging, enduring, persevering, bearing troubles and ills. And then the fourth characteristic is that of forbearance. It says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. The word forbearance means to hold up, hence in the middle, to hold oneself erect firm against any person or thing, to sustain, to bear to bear with or to endure. Dictionary.com, I thought, gave a a simple definition. To be patient or self-controlled when subject to annoyance. Somebody just annoys you. But you're patient with them. Or they provoke you. Colossians 3.13 says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And we are, he says here, to be forbearing in love. Now, Proverbs 10, 12 says this. Hatred stirreth up strifes. But love covereth all sins. Hatred stirreth up strife. If you hated each other, you would pick and would be able to pick each other apart. You could pick each other apart. Whether it be in the church or in a marriage relationship or friends. Yeah, we wouldn't have any friends. We'd be friendless because we just pick each other apart. But love, the Bible says in Proverbs, the rest of that verse, 10, 12, love covereth all sins. And it really means pardons all sins. That's the idea of, of pardon there. And so because you love one another, you pardon one another. One another. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, that charity, and you know, there's a list of things that charity, about charity, and it says charity thinketh no evil. 
Why? Because when you're thinking about charity is love. So if you love each other, you think best of each other. You know, when I did marriage counseling, one of the things I instructed Bradley and Amber was, you know, think the best of each other. There are going to be times when you may say something and she may think, what did he mean by that? Or she may say something and you may think, what did she mean by that? And didn't mean that at all. You know, we have to have relationships, and the idea here is relationships built on trust and love for each other. Your dictatorships are built in mistrust. That's why Stalin was constantly killing off men that work under him. They're constantly worried about, you know, in a dictatorship or, or in a place where, the, where there's all this kind of mistrust and there's wickedness, you know, you have to be so careful what you say because what you say could be misconstrued to mean something you didn't mean. And so we're to have forbearance for one another in love. To bear with. To be patient with one another. Then I want you to notice a third thing. This unity, of course, is created by our walk. Notice verses 3 through 6. It says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, so this unity, we're talking about unity here, is created by our walk. Notice says we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. The word endeavor means to exert oneself to. It, it, the word is translated study in 2 Timothy 2.15 where it says study to show thyself approved unto God. It's translated diligence. So we're talking about giving some effort to. Exerting oneself to. Keeping. The word keep means to hold firmly. And the word bond, that which binds us together. It's like the ligaments in the body which bind it together. And so we're to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is only one body. The word body, there's described it as, is used of a large or small number of men closely united in one society. Or family, as it were, a social, ethical, mystical body, so in the New Testament of the church. So we're talking about the church. There's only one body. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus said there's only one body. And you're that body. You know, a number of men closely united in one society. Sounds like a church to me. Um, the word is translated the same in other places. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Uh, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether it be Jews or Gentiles, whether it be bond or free. And have made all to drink into one spirit. Verse 27 says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church. So it's evident. He says that ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And then God hath set some in the church. Or some in the body. He's using the words interchangeably there. Uh, in the body. Uh, 
First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, and diversities of tongues. And of course, it's referring to a local church, which is a body of Christ. And he says there's only one. There's only one in Ephesus. In other words, there was others, other places. But I want you to, notice, I want you to think about something here. Verse 4 through 6. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Only one. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Uh, it says that the husband is the head of the wife. The wife, not the wives. No such thing as a universal wife. <laughs> that makes me chuckle. You know, we're members of one body, one church. We're not member of all churches. Some people have this idea, oh yeah, I'm just a member of the body of Christ out there somewhere. You know, all the churches. What are we, polygamous Christians? No, there's one. And the point he's making here is, in our walk, we are all in different stages. We heard about that this morning. If we'd all catch up with Brother Hoyle, we'd be, be okay, you know. It's sort of like a race. The Christian life is compared to a race. Paul compared it to a race in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Some start earlier. Some run faster. But we all have the same finish line. We all have the same goal. We all have the same God. We all have the same baptism. That's water. The same faith, body of truth. We have the same Lord, the same Spirit. In fact, when, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and then also in chapter 12, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is the thing he's trying to get across to them also when he said, And I, brethren, cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, 1 Corinthians 3, 1, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for you are yet carnal. For there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, another of Apollos, another I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed, even the Lord, as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted. Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, and ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. So what he's saying is, you know, Christ isn't divided. There's only one Lord. So when you're saying you follow Paul and you say you follow Apollos, you're trying to divide the Lord. You don't have to follow men. 
to follow the Lord. You see, we get into trouble when we start following men. That's why there's so many divisions in Christianity. Because people have followed men. You know, that's how we got the Roman Catholic Church. That's how we got the Presbyterian Church. And Calvinism, all these things. They're doctrines of men. They're not doctrines of the Word of God. And then again in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. He talks about the Spirit. Of course, they pride themselves in being real spiritual and having the gifts of the Spirit. And, and yet they had these divisions among them. And so Paul says in, in verse 4, now there are diversities of gifts. In other words, there's different gifts. We don't all have the same gifts. But the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of the operations, but it is the same God. So how can you be divided if you have the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God? It should not, not lead you to the same place. You see, when we follow the same Lord, the same God, the same Spirit, we're going to be all in agreement. The unity will be automatic. We don't have to create it. It will be created by our walk. But again, we're all in different stages. You know, let's say, you know, the Lord's up here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And you're there, and you're there, and you're back there. We're all going to the same place. We may be in different stages of growth, but we're all going to the same place. And we can't say to one another, well, you need to get up here where I am. And you might say, well, you need to get back here where I am. No, we need to be forbearing one another. Being lowly in mind. Being long-suffering, patient, instructing with meekness. You're accepting. And some people, sometimes people have, well, I wish I could be like, you know, I used to, when I was young and foolish, I used to think, now I'm just old and foolish. But when I was young and foolish, I used to think, well, I wish I could preach like that guy. I wish I could preach like Gary Webb. And a couple of preachers told me one time, they said, I couldn't do what you're doing. And I was like, yeah, right. They said, no, I couldn't. God didn't call me to it. And I thought, you know what, they're right. God doesn't want me to be Gary Webb. He doesn't want you to be somebody else. He wants to be you to be who you are and let him work in your life and use the gifts that God has given you to glorify him. So we're not to look at one another and judge one another that way. We're to be forbearing one another. You know, again, not like Peter who looked at John and said, yeah, what about him? Jesus simply said, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Follow thou me. You know, 
when we have an authority, a common authority, it makes life so much easier. It makes it possible we can work out, work through, and work with our differences, our personalities. And God gives us the instruction how we can not just get along, but actually love one another in the process. You know, it's thinking about this. What other place is there like the church of the living God? You're the world, and the world, to get unity, you have to create it. You have to create it. But here, it's created as God works in our lives and as we pursue Him in our walk with Him. Might we pursue in the things that please the Lord to walk worthy of our vocation in lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance.